morning. I'm going to move some of this stuff over. Good to see you all here on this bright and wonderful spring morning. Don't get too excited. I hear the snow is coming this week. Uh, in your bulletin, place your offerings in the offering box, of course, Andrea's number, and you'll see the monthly booklets are here for your use. Uh, I have a note from Ken Jones. Much thanks to Pastor Fred for his wonderful and outstanding sermons leading up to Easter concerning the message of grace. Signed, Ken Jones, and we all appreciate that. And Ken, if you're watching, we miss you and hope to see you soon. Is there anything I've forgotten this morning, missed, overlooked? Oh, I just talked to Dale like eight seconds ago, so <laughs> I, I forgot that already. Uh, if we could, uh, just a two-minute meeting, deacons and elders in the office after service, uh, just a couple of couple of little items and uh, we'll be on our way all right if not uh, anything else then our scripture for meditation is taken from John's gospel uh, read John chapter 15 verses 16 through 
you'll stand with me, we'll open our service in prayer. Phil, would you open for us today? standing. We take your red hymnal this morning, the Trinity, and turn to number 591, 591 in the red Trinity.
first hand that I saw. I think it was a hand. Yes, sir. Battle Henry Republic. Battle Henry Republic. number? I don't, but it's not in the red. It's Five six nine. Good job, Naomi. Five six nine in the brown. Do you have a reason for this one this morning? Five six nine in brown. Yeah, it just seems like a <coughs> for America's citizens, the love of country and the love of God. Okay. Thank you. And he wanted us all to stand here. <laughs> and he and wanted. <laughs> Scripture reading this morning is found uh, again in John's Gospel, chapter 6, and we'll be reading 34 through 47. 
1657 in the Pew Bible. John 6, 34 through 47. Will you take your red hymnal once more and turn to number 651, 651 in the red?
Our text this morning is John 6, verses 34 and following. So once again, we return to this very important chapter of the Bible. It's just loaded Actually, it's loaded with all the doctrines that we hold dear in terms of what we would call the doctrines of grace. So far, we have seen here the total depravity of the human heart. As Jesus, the prince of preachers, began to explain to people who were looking for a free meal ticket that they should seek for the food that endures to eternal life. Verse 27. And immediately these people began to exhibit their carnality, their self-righteousness, their arrogance, their ignorance, and their blindness. In other words, their total inability to respond aright to the teachings of the Lord. We saw as well the doctrine of sovereign election. Jesus told this group of followers point blank, as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 36, verse 37. We learn that election is the free and sovereign choice of God to save sinners. We learn that the basis of God's choice is not, it is not, his foreknowledge in the mere sense of premonition but foreknowledge in the sense of foreknowing exactly what he himself has ordained. That's how he knows. He doesn't merely know what's possible, though he knows that too, but he knows what is certain to be known, and his foreknowledge has determined what God knows. Secondly, we learn that election is eternal in origin, before the creation of the world. By decree, God fixed the numbers of the elect, wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life, slew the Lamb of God for their sins, prepared the kingdom for them to inherit. All of those statements are followed by the, or not followed, preceded by the statement before the creation of the world. So, God is not reacting He's not the Johnny-come-lately type of thing. He is foreordaining all of these things, and that's why they come about. He has determined history in advance. By decree, God fixed the number of his people, wrote their names in the Lamb's Book of Life, all before the foundation of the world. We also saw in the principle of representation that it's in Adam all men die. So we're all related to Adam, right? I mean, he's the first man. He sinned, he passed on his sinful genes to all of us. And that's why we die in him. But the other part of the verse says this, in Christ, 
all will be made alive. That is, those that are in Christ will be made alive. So that's the principle of representation, how that works in Scripture. Now once again, we return to this discourse in John 6. Before I begin, I think it's accurate to say that every doctrine of grace is taught by Jesus in this passage of Scripture. John chapter 6. Every doctrine of grace. Don't believe me? Total inability, verse 44. No one can come, he says. Unconditional election of God, the Father. Verse 37. All that the Father gives will come to me. Particular redemption, verse 51. Speaking of himself as the bread from heaven. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. Now world here is not teaching universalism as it is clear in verse 33, 35, 53 and following. The world of believers is what is being referred to. Number four, irresistible grace or effectual calling. Verse 44, verse 65, which I'm about to address today. And then finally, the perseverance of the saints, both in its preservation respect, aspect, excuse me, Jesus repeatedly says that he will never drive away or lose any who believe in him. Where do you see that? Well, verse 37, verse 39, verse 40, verse 44. Wow, there's a lot here on perseverance. Perseverance also in its charge to us to continue on in holiness. That's repeated charges to believe in Christ, to eat and drink of him, to learn from the Father about Christ, verse 45. So it's all here. This is a marvelous chapter. It's a mystical, magical chapter because it includes all the doctrines of grace in one setting. You could spend quite a bit of time in personal study just studying John chapter 6. So what I'm saying is it's truly a remarkable passage of Scripture and anything that I've done with it is rudimentary at best. And I commend it to your digging diligently. It's a gold mine of spiritual treasure. Like I said. So I ask the question today, what effect does the gospel have on people? Today I want to talk about effectual calling. It's the power of the gospel. Effectual calling. The power of the gospel. In this text of scripture we saw that Jesus was confronted with a group of carnal food seekers who were looking for another free meal. They were self-righteous people. They believed that they could do whatever works God required of them. Verse 28. Just tell us, Lord, what you what we're supposed to do. We're pretty sure we can do it. They were arrogant people who demanded to see Christ's credentials for his claims. Verse 30, verse 31. Showing his credentials in front of them all the time. They were just looking for another free meal. 
They got fed once. Mm, I wonder if we can convince him to feed us again. But finally, they were ignorant and blind people who appeared to be tuning into Jesus' teaching. I say they were appearing to do that, verse 34, but who in the end were found grumbling about his teaching and denying his true identity, verse 41, verse 42. So don't get hot and bothered over people sometimes that look so like they're, oh, they're just in love with the gospel. Wow. It's not initial introductions that are important. Are they going to stay? Are they going to be steadfast? That's the proof of true faith. Now the Bible uses various words to describe the condition of the human heart as we witness it. It here. One word is the word lost. Matthew eighteen eleven says Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Another word, unbelievers, repeatedly employed by Jesus in this text. Verse thirty six, verse sixty four. Paul uses three very descriptive words in Romans chapter five. Christ died for the ungodly, verse 7. While we were still sinners, verse 8. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. When we were God's enemies, third word, verse 10. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Ungodly sinners who were enemies of God. That is Paul's description, God's description of who we were, what we were, before Christ saved us. To these, we could add Jesus' description of grumblers, verse 43. People who are offended by the truth of the gospel, verse 61. But if we were to search the scriptures looking for one word which would embrace all of these others and incorporate them in one descriptive term, I believe it would be the word Paul uses in Ephesians 2 verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead. Now, the word dead may not say it all, but it certainly contains it all. Different words help us to see the nature of our particular spiritual deadness, whether we express our lifelessness in unbelief or in grumbling, in ungodly living, in taking offense at the preaching of the gospel, etc., etc. But the bottom line explanation for all of these wicked responses to Christ the Savior, is our deadness in spirit to the things of God. And guess what? Dead people have no spiritual abilities whatsoever. I think this is a hard pill to swallow for many people. They will protest. Oh, I'm very much alive, I'll have you know. 
they live and breathe and work and play and they think and act and plan and execute those plans. I'm alive. None of this scripture denies. In fact, in Ephesians 2, the passage cited earlier where Paul uses the term dead in transgressions and sins, he goes on to say, in which you used to live. And what follows is a barrage of action words describing their life. Followed the ways of the world, verse 2. Verse 3, all of us lived, lived among them, the disobedient, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, more activity. So there's a tremendous amount of living going on in these people's lives so how can Paul place the word dead in juxtaposition to the word life or live? Is this not self-contradictory? And if so, utter nonsense. We know that two opposites cannot be true at one and the same time. This would be a real contradiction in the scripture and reason enough for us to question the validity of God's word. Well, the answer to all of this is that Paul is not talking about physiological life or even the spirit of a man which animates his thinking and activities. Paul was talking about a person's response to God. God is perfectly holy, righteous, and good. Can a sinful, ungodly enemy of God who is constantly and willfully breaking the law of God, who is skeptical as to the existence of God or of his right to rule over our lives, if he does exist, hmm, can a person whose religion cons consists more of self-adulation, self-praise of human effort, can a person whose religion is all of that, can that kind of person want this kind of God in his life? Will he seek him, find him, embrace him, finally, as friend and savior? We have in our text people who hired boats. Verse 23, verse 24. They sailed across the Sea of Galilee and searched for Jesus. Wow, isn't that great? But when he did not cater to their misconceptions of who and what he was, they complained that his teaching was hard and impossible to accept, verse 60. And in the end, they turned and walked away, verse 66, and they never went back. Whoa. They didn't give Jesus a second look. If they even gave him a good first look. They dropped him like a bad habit. Why? You say, well, there was no faith, no belief in their heart for the truth that he was teaching. That is certainly true. But why didn't they believe? What's the barrier? 
Is it a matter of them not receiving the right information? Is that why they concluded that Jesus was Mary and Joseph's son instead of God the Father's son? Verse 42. Didn't they know about the prophecies of the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem? Didn't they know about Mary and Joseph's trip to Bethlehem while Mary was pregnant in the days of the census? I mean, is this a big secret? What are they doing in terms of their study habits? John 5.39, Jesus said to this group of people, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Wow, well, at least they're using the right source material, aren't they? They're reading the right book. But you see, even that doesn't help. The barrier, brethren, is not, it is not misinformation. It is not insufficient information. It is not that Jesus hasn't spoken clearly enough though they accuse him of hard teaching. And it isn't that they have had no credible signs of Jesus' deity and power. They had had many signs and wonders done by Christ, the latest of which filled their hungry stomachs. Let's not forget that. He fed over 5,000 from a little bread and fish. No, the barrier over which these people could not climb nor circumlocate was the barrier of spiritual deadness. Spiritual deadness. They seek, but they can't find. They knock. But when the door is open, they don't walk through. They ask, but when they are told, they do not believe. But what I want you to see this morning is that it is not just a matter of do not believe, but rather cannot believe. Jesus himself acknowledges this in our text. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless. And what follows is the proviso which enables sinners to come to Christ. But on their own, they cannot come. The burial is the, the barrier rather is spiritual deadness. Spiritual deadness. 
This is the depravity of a human heart. And I agree with R.C. Sproul that if people can be convinced of the doctrine of total inability, just that one doctrine, for all intent and purposes, the argument is over concerning predestination, election, effectual calling, and the rest. Total inability. But that's the bugaboo. Don't tell me I'm not able. I don't like you telling me I'm not able. I am certainly able. They think like the devil thinks about spiritual matters. 2nd,ly it is the doctrine of effectual calling which addresses the problem of man's spiritual inability or deadness in spiritual matters. It is this doctrine which Jesus referred to when he observed the unbelief of his hearers, the grumbling, the arguing of their conversations, their failure to respond to his teaching by coming to him for eternal life. So he says to them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 43, verse 44. Ever think about this? How are in the world, how in the world are we going to get dead people to respond properly to the gospel? I mean, do we believe that God's word is true when he says we're all dead in trespasses and sin? Well, if we believe God's word, then we're all dead in trespasses and sins. So that's what God has to work with. That's what the evangelists have to work with, the preachers have to work with, your witnessing fellow Christians have to work with. You're working with dead people who cannot respond to anything. Wow. We've all heard the lame analogies which some preachers use to explain how people must choose Christ as their personal Savior. I've heard this so many times. I'm sure you have as well, but let me give it to you. Picture a man, we are told. Picture a man who has been diagnosed with a fatal disease. But though the disease is fatal, there is hope because the doctors have a healing medicine. And all you've got to do is ingest it. And it'll kill the cancer. It'll save the man's life. All that man has to do is reach out and take the medicine. It's there by his bedside. It's free. It's powerful. One dose will do the trick. But if he will not take the medicine, he will perish. I've heard that so many times. Or some similar scenarios. Of course, in this, uh, in this scenario, Christ and his saving work is 
the powerful dose of medicine in this scenario. And the taking of the medicine is seen as the response of the will, as one believes what the doctors, in this case the ministers, have told him. So he reaches out to take the medicine on the table. In this scenario, the sinner is seen as, oh, he's very, very ill. Deathly sick. It is such an illness that it's fatal. He is so sick that he will die if he refuses the medicine, which, of course, is Christ. Brethren, the defect of this illustration, however, is that the Bible does not depict men as sick and dying. It depicts men as already dead. You say, well, uh, yeah, no, no, don't, don't, don't wash it down now. The Bible is not talking about people who are sick and dying. It talks about people who are dead. They're not on their way out with a few good breaths in them and power to move their hand from the nightstand by the bed to their mouth with the medicine. No, they are motionless on a cold stone slab in the city morgue with pallid skin and purple lips. There's no life, brethren. There's no spiritual life. No appetite for God. No appreciation of God. No desire to know Him in any way, shape, or form, including the salvation of their own souls. Now that's pretty dead. And people who have invented this scenario and others like them, which depict men as sick and dying but not as totally dead, do so believing that in stressing the choice of sinners to take the medicine or not, they somehow protect God from being charged with injustice in the condemnation of sinners. That's what they're up to. You know, I'm sure you've heard this. They say something like this. God did all that he could do, but the sinner chose not to take the medicine so God is exonerated. Do you know that God doesn't need to be exonerated by men for his actions? He judges us, not we him. But even more serious is the monstrous teaching which surfaces when men say, God did all that he could do, but. Could do all that he could do, but. As soon as you throw the disclaimer, but. It quickly and effectively disallows the sovereignty of God to rule and overrule in the affairs of men. And when God ceases to be sovereign, he also ceases to be God. 
When men deny God's sovereignty, they are not, for all intents and purposes, understanding the reality that that makes them practical atheists. It does. We are not dualists who believe in two equally powerful beings locked in moral conflict over supremacy. No, we are theists and monotheists at that. We believe that no will is equal to or superior to the will of God Almighty. Another and perhaps a more subtle reason why people hold to this sick and dying scenario view of man is to preserve the will of man and thus his dignity to make his own choices. They believe that this is the only way to refute any charge of coercion for man's actions of faith and repentance and to preserve human responsibility. I mean, if man can't do what God commands him to do, if he can't believe in Jesus when presented with the gospel, then he's no longer responsible. And if he's not responsible, he can't be justly condemned for disobedience. That's the way the logic goes. Well, let's take a look at these two rationales of our Arminian brethren for why they preach the way they do. First, the notion that God, in order to justly condemn sinners, must give them a chance to believe or reject the gospel. Okay, I ask this question. Where in all the Bible does it ever say that God is obligated to show mercy to people who are willfully opposed to his commands, actively hostile to his will, enemies against him and his decrees as king, transgressors and breakers of his law, ungodly and defiant in their lifestyle, and grumblers and objectors to his teaching? Find me the verse. If it could be shown that God were somehow the author of such sin, then the argument would be valid, but nowhere in the Bible is God depicted as the author of sin. Rather, Adam and Eve, by their own free choice, opted to believe the lie of Satan and to take of the forbidden tree. Did God permit this to occur? Yes. Could he have stopped it? Yes. That he chose not to stop it does not make God the author of sin. His part in this is righteous and good. It is our part that's wicked and evil. Since God did not refuse to create mankind, even though he knew we would fall into sin, how is that unloving on God's part? Did he not also determine to save a people, his elect, from their sin? Was it less than love which prompted God to send his son to the cross for the redemption of his people? So I return to my original question. Where in all the Bible is God ever depicted as being obligated to show mercy to people who hate him and reject his word? 
to ask it another way, must God love everyone with saving grace in order to be a loving God? Must all men be placed on equal footing before God in order for justice to occur? I want you to think about this. The moment we speak of God being obligated to love all men equally, then grace is no longer grace. You ever think about that? The very essence of grace is that it is unmerited favor from God. Now God may owe people justice, but he never owes them mercy. In his own words, I'll read it for you. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Romans 9, verse 15. So neither mercy nor love towards sinners is an obligation to God. He's saying, I'll do what I want with my mercy and my compassion. So this being so, the notion that all men must be given a chance to believe the gospel in order for God to be just in his condemnation of sinners, that's unfounded. I can just hear the cries, unfair, unfair. Some will be thinking. But what is meant by the charge unfair? If we mean that all men do not stand on an equal footing before God, then the charge is substantiated. The Bible is clear that Israel was chosen as God's holy nation, while Canaan, Moab, Egypt, and many others were passed over. Is that fair? Christ opened Saul's blind eyes, but he left the other Pharisees perish in their blindness. God does not treat every human being in history in the same way. But if we mean by unfair, unjust, well, now we are dealing with another matter. If the Bible is true, when it declares that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, what is wrong with God choosing whom he wills to receive mercy and grace? You say, well, well, what do the rest receive? The rest receive justice. The redeemed receive mercy. The lost receive justice. No one gets injustice or injustice. This is not evil on God's part because he owes us nothing but his wrath. Do we know that? So I could say it this way. Some people get the mercy which they do not deserve. Others get the condemnation which they do deserve. No one is treated unfairly. The real question is, why would God love and be merciful to any of us? That's the question we should be asking. Why don't I get justice? Why am I not condemned? 
need to think through these things. What about the second rationale of Arminian preaching? They say we must teach the free will of man in order to preserve the teaching that man is responsible for his conduct. And God is just in condemning him for his wrong choices. So, we teach that. When people ask me, do you believe that man has a free will? I answer, yeah, of course. I believe that man does act most freely with regard to his conduct and even the choices he makes concerning his eternal future. Throughout our text, Jesus repeatedly points to these people's willful decisions to resist his teaching. Verse 36, you have seen me and still do not believe. Well, that's their decision, right? And I might say, and regardless of the wonderful evidence they saw from Christ, they remained unbelieving. And Jesus credits them with the unbelief. No one made them skeptical. That was of their own free choice. Verse 64. God's sovereignty does not negate human freedom. What sovereignty comes loggerheads over is not human freedom, but human autonomy. Oh, by the way, they're not the same. Autonomy. Let me define the word for you. Auto meaning self, and nomos is the Greek word for law. Self-law, self-government. It means to have to give an answer to no one. In the day of the judges, we are told that men did what was right in their own eyes. That's what's going on. And thus proclaiming themselves exempt from the law of God. You can't tell me what to do, God. I am my own lawgiver and that's where the battle line is drawn it is impossible to have a sovereign God with an autonomous man one does not have to be autonomous to be free in one's choices autonomy means absolute freedom and is free, but his freedom is always less than God's freedom. Think about it. God, because he is sovereign, places restrictions upon our freedom. Laws by which I am to live. And if I disobey, he has every right to strike me dead for disobedience. God is free. I am free. But God is more free than I shall ever be. <laughs> He's the boss. Now, with regard to free will, there is another dimension that must be factored in, and that's the fall of man into sin. And as a result, the sinful nature which all mankind is born with. The scripture declares that it is out of the heart of man that all of his actions proceed. Jesus spoke a number of times about making the tree good if one expected it to produce good fruit. 
Is the heart of man good? The Bible answers, there is no one good, not even one. So, if not even one man has a good heart, will there ever be found a man on the earth, except Jesus, who will make the good and righteous choices of believing God when he speaks, obeying his commands that he gives us, forsaking the sin of our heart, and come to Christ as Savior? Will that ever happen? It's right here that the doctrine of effectual calling addresses the issue. This is why Jesus said, no one can come, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He's addressing it. No one can come. The interpretation of this drawing of the Father is given in verse 5, excuse me, verse 65, can't read my own writing, where Jesus says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father enables him. Oh, that's what he meant by draw. The drawing of God is enabling The word in these two verses are not the same. Draw is the word helkuo in Greek. The Greek dictionary defines to compel by irresistible force. Draw. Draw. Now that's a far cry from the explanation of many that it simply means that God Woos the sinner to come to Christ. Compel is more dynamic than woo. The other word, verse 65, is a Greek word used in wide application, including bestow, granted, bring forth. And since verse 65 is the explanation of the Lord for verse 44... It follows that the Father's compulsion to come to Christ is what was bestowed on the believing disciples and that compulsion is in fact their enabling. They were enabled. The charge is here then leveled. Then God brings sinners to Christ against their will. Uh Uh-uh. No, not so. We've already demonstrated that a man will always choose according to the desire of his heart, right? We have the natural ability to choose whatever we desire. But it is in our desire that we are dead spiritually. Genesis 6 verse 5 describes the desires of fallen man's heart. Let me read it for you. First book of the Bible hits on this. Every inclination, I'm reading scripture, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart 
are only evil all the time. Got it? Only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. Wow. That's the deadness of which the scripture speaks. Only evil all the time. Our thoughts. So an effectual calling, a new heart is given by God. And that dead and stony heart is removed and a living, beating heart that now desires God is implanted in its place. By the way, the Old Testament taught this too. Ezekiel writes in 36, 26 and following, God is speaking, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. Stone is dead, right? And I will give you a heart of flesh, one that's alive. And I will put my spirit in you. And have you follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Wow. Old Testament, New Testament, God has to do the work. Before a person can make a free and willing choice of God, his heart has to be given the desire to want God. Faith is not the means of the new birth, but the result of it. Faith is the new want to that reaches out to God. Jesus says in our text, verse 63, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. Effectual calling is practically identical to regeneration. And one can no more prevent the new birth from occurring by an act of human will than one can prevent one's own physical conception and birth by the act of the will. The moment one is born again, he's alive in Christ and in the kingdom. We do not believe and then come alive. We are made alive and then we believe. So, what's the conclusion? Well, effectual calling is effectual just because it's the sovereign call of God to the sinner which is inward and changes his heart. It is the calling spoken of in Romans 8, verse 30, which results in justification. It is not the external call which comes to all sinners every time the gospel sermon is preached and they listen to it. And if it is the spirit of the living God who gives life and the flesh counts for nothing, it is foolish to assume that sinners choose to respond to Christ before they are born again. Simply put, let me read it from scripture. This is love, writes John. This is love, not 
that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And we love because he first loved us. First John 4, verse 10 and following. The problem of Jesus' audience is their unbelief and denial of his sonship. Verse 41, verse 42. They are dead spiritually. God has not taken up residence in their life. In closing, I would say the doctrine of effectual calling blows the God is a gentleman. That teaching, it blows it right out of the water. You've all heard this, I'm sure. Now you know God is a gentleman. He will not force his way into your heart. He's waiting at the door of your heart for you to open it and let him come in. What an anemic and paltry portrayal of God that is. Poor comfort to the man in hell who I'm sure would have preferred a little compulsion by God to deliver, to deliver him from the consequences of his sin. Effectual calling is compulsory drawing to Christ by God. And if God didn't exercise his sovereignty over our natural inclinations, there wouldn't be a saved sinner in the universe. That's how much we hate God and love our sin. And then finally, the doctrine of effectual calling does no violence, no violation to the gospel requirements of faith and repentance. When I said that effectual calling is compulsory, I was referring to the new heart that God gives. But once that new heart is in place, yeah, there must be evangelistic response of turning away from your sin and turning unto Christ. That's what the new heart is going to do. Faith and repentance are both God's gift, but once given, they are exercised by a man or woman with the new heart. He says so. All that the Father gives to Christ will come to me. Verse 37. The will of the Father is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. Verse 40. The exercise of faith in Christ is part of the enabling of God. Verse 64. Verse 65. The gifts of Then finally, effectual calling demonstrates that salvation is not simply a possibility provided for sinners to be saved, but actually the procurement based on the unalterable will of the sovereign God. We're not talking here of a kind of 
prevenient grace which gives all men the possibility of choosing Christ but compels none of them to respond aright to the message of the gospel. What good is that? I need sovereign grace which actually brings about the desired effect of God's will to save. Sproul put it this way, without regeneration, no one will ever come to Christ. Wow. With generation, regeneration, no one will ever reject Him. God's saving grace effects what He intends to be affected by it. What's that? Chosen by God. Brought into his family. So Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Romans 1 verse 16. This whole idea that God's a gentleman, he's not going to force his will on anybody. I want to tell you, I want his will forced on me. If I'm standing at the precipice of hell and I'm going there at lightning speed, I want him to intercede and force me to stop. I want him to grab hold of me. Pull me back from the precipice instead of letting me go the way of all men. I love the compulsion of God, the mercy of God. Not going to let me be the idiot that my sinful heart wants to be. And people get very proud and arrogant about all of this. Well, I have a free will and my free will I want to be able if my free will is going to make me jump into the lake of fire I don't care to be free anymore I want God to intervene stop me in my tracks draw me into his loving arms say you can't go that way if that if you go that way you die and you die for all of eternity and that is a hell you do not want to endure for all of eternity so I have to say thank you God for your compulsive love that reaches down from glory grabs a hold of me and pulls me back from the precipice He doesn't need my permission to do that, by the way, nor yours. He's going to love whom he loves. We read the scripture. He's going to have compassion on whom he wants to have compassion. He's not beholden to you. You're beholden to him. So if you're a lost sinner this morning, your prayer should be, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Pull me back from the precipice of hell because I'm about ready to jump.
Forgive me for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Please help us with our stubbornness because we are so stubborn, so willful. We think we know best. We think all's okay with our soul. But in reality, it's not okay because we're lost in our sin and we have no way to change ourselves. We need someone from the outside to pull us back and save us. And that someone is you and only you, the perfect man, the sinless man, the one who never did sin. And so he can pull us aside, he can save us, and he can grant us mercy on the merit of his sinless life. He can bestow his blood sacrifice on us. He can take our sins upon himself, which he does do for all who will believe. Do we believe this morning? I pray we do. If not, Lord, grant us faith. Grant us a heart that's changed for your honor and your glory. We pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity 479. That's the red hymnal, 479 in Trinity.
Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that your mercy and your grace is available to us as we trust you and trust Christ. Someone has to pay for our sins because you're a just God. And it's not just to let sinners, lawbreakers, go free. So how's that going to work? Well, your son Jesus has become the stand-in substitute by his own choice, his own will. If we will believe in him, he'll stand in for us. He will take our sins upon himself. And what would otherwise condemn us, his blood is sufficient to cleanse us and to forgive us. But he's the only way. He says he is the only way, the truth and the life, and that no man can come to the Father, God the Father, except through him. So try as we might to go many other ways. It's not going to work. And I hope that you will show us in our hearts that it's not going to work. We need Jesus. He doesn't need us. We need him. And I pray that you will grant us the faith to trust and believe in him. May we pray right now in our hearts, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need to trust Christ as my stand-in substitute. Take my sins upon yourself. Forgive me. Pay for my sins. Bring me into your kingdom. Grant me that new heart that we read about today from the book of Ezekiel. And I'll praise you, Lord, for what you do. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. We are dismissed.